Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Edward DeGange, author of The Gift Best Given, a moving and extraordinary memoir about the three-year genealogical search for his origins that began in New Jersey Cemetery and the life of an extraordinary woman, his birth mother. Genevieve Norowski left home at the age of 17 in the midst of World War II to join an ice skating troupe and embarked on a five-year journey across the U.S. as she rose to fame. And then life intervened, and she had to make a decision on an Easter Sunday in New York City that will forever connect the story of a woman pursuing her dreams with the life of a man searching for answers. Author Edward DeGange's heart is in this story in more ways than one. His heart beat fast when he committed to the path to find answers to his past, and when he made one discovery after another, His heart became more full for the love of a mother who had the courage and grace to give him life and lead him to relatives he never knew he had. Ed, welcome to the show. Landis, thank you so much for inviting me to be with you. And as I'm reading that, I'm also getting a little choked up. You know, I was getting choked up. That's a lovely introduction. Yeah, uh, because I really did enjoy your book. It's a fascinating story. Um, And I I was thinking about this this morning as I was getting ready for this interview again, this is kind of like a puzzle. You know, people who like to do crossword, I mean, jigsaw puzzles, you put them on the big table and you put one piece in and and 
and you were solving a puzzle here of, of your past. And I'm just curious that, that, you know, just like when you finish that, you know, thousand piece puzzle, when you step back and look at the finished product, you know, that jigsaw of a life that uh, you piece together, how does that make you feel? Uh, well, it was certainly a, a feeling of, of, of success and completion. This is a story that I had carried with me for many, many years uh, for for reasons unknown even to myself. I waited a long time to to unbox the pieces and try to put them together. Uh, it, it gave me a, a, a sense of closure on, on where I came from and why I wound up where I did in life. And, you know, it's, it's given me the gift of, of a whole new bunch of people in my life as well. I've, I've found half siblings, I've found cousins and, and it's been a, it's been a lovely story. As you said, it's been a puzzle. One piece after another just fell into place though. And, and that was just pure serendipity. I was very, very lucky. Yeah, I was going to ask this question, but I'm going to move it up now. Why did you wait so long, Ed? You said you were closing in on uh, 70 before you even took on this project. Uh, yeah, that's that's way later than most people wait to search out answers like this. And I, uh, you know, I, it, it almost sounds cliche, but I was living, I lived such a good life. And I was brought up by people who loved me as as well as they could have loved any natural child. And I felt no need for it. You know, there were probably those in the adoption community who would say, oh, he was in the fog and he didn't want to admit it. Uh, the fact was I, I knew that I had been adopted and it, it didn't matter. It, it wasn't important. The folks who brought me up were, were my parents and, you know, I could probably overthink it and come up with more reasons, but I think that was, that was the basics of it. I was, I lived a happy life and I was, I lived with happy people, you know, nurturing people. So, so did you wait, Ed, out of respect for your adoptive parents or uh, did you, was it just something that you didn't feel like you uh, needed to explore until it just thrust itself upon you? I, well, I think it was a combination of all of those. You know, I, I could tell you that it was out of respect for my adoptive parents, but you know, my, my adoptive father has been gone for 45 years, my mother 35. So, so it wasn't that I was going to step on their toes, certainly. Um, the, the moment was just right. You know, as, as you said, this began in a, in a cemetery up in New Jersey as we were up there to, to inter my wife's father. And it, it, it was just a combination of circumstances that said, okay, now's the time to start looking. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about the book cover, which we do here on Charlotte Rears podcast. Uh, the listeners can't see it, but they'll be able to see it in the show notes at charlotteriespodcast.com. Um, there's a picture on the cover. It looks like a, uh, a very happy woman, uh, in sort of a, uh, an uptown environment, maybe even at a, fancy standing outside a fancy hotel with a canopy running out there that says rooms and diners. And, and, uh, she, she looks like she's dressed, uh, for success and her hair is blowing back. Uh, is this your, is this your birth mother? Yeah, that's my birth mother. And first time my wife saw it, she looked at it and she said, that's it. That's the date picture. <laughs> and you know, it, the picture is inscribed August, 1947, which is the month in which I would have been conceived. 
and it indicates San Francisco. And we later, I later determined through some searching that she was a, she was with the Ice Follies in San Francisco in August of 1947, performing there. And later, when I inadvertently tripped over the information that led me to my birth father's identity, uh, I found that he had never left San Francisco. So that 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 was a. The final piece that just put her where and when I, I had suspected. Yeah, it looks like her entire life's in front of her. She's in this exciting, glamorous uh, adventure. We're going to talk a little bit more about here today. Uh, the ice skating, and, and as you say, she is in San Francisco, smiling. Uh, it's in sepia tones. Is that sort of a kind of a, a nod to nostalgia to the past here? No, actually, the interesting story here is this photograph came out of her son's photograph album or her, her album, which he was, you know, he was now in possession of. And she maintained a very good photographic log of where she had been all set chronologically. And every page was filled by the old Brownie Kodak black and white snapshots. <laughs> yeah. And while he and I were discussing the fact that I was trying to convince him he truly was my brother and that she truly had been my, my mother, we flipped the page in the album, and there was this one color picture in the midst of all of the black and whites. And I had told him before we got there, I said, I was conceived in San Francisco in 1947. And it was almost like somebody had just pasted it there waiting for that moment. Mm. Let's talk about the title, uh, Ed, uh, The Gift Best Given. I have some ideas about what that might mean, having read the book, but I'd like to hear in your words, what that title says to you? Uh, well, it's from a personal level, I feel I was given a tremendous gift by her sacrifice and and decision to place me for adoption. Uh, the the verbiage itself comes from the text in the book where Genevieve, my birth mother, is having a conversation with a woman at the hospital where she ultimately went to give birth to me and is discussing her options and by basically saying, I don't know what to do. And the woman, I think, has told her, well, you've been given a great gift. And Genevieve is kind of coming to terms with what to do with this gift. And and the woman tells her, well, you know, at some point, you know, you've probably received a gift and it wasn't precisely the one you wanted. But if you had passed it on to somebody else, that would be, you know, that would be treasured by them. So it was a gift received and a gift, a gift given. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and what we have here um, really is, is two stories. Uh, we have the story of a 17 year old girl who left home in New York city in the midst of world war II to travel across the United States by train uh, to join a traveling ice skating troupe. Uh, talk about that more about that in a second. We also have the story of, uh, of you, Ed, um, you know, as an older man deciding to embark upon a three-year journey yourself that would ultimately open up uh, many secrets that uh, hadn't been intentionally hidden from you, but just had been hidden from you. And uh, I'd like to start, uh, Ed, with a little reading about, uh, you know, the early part of your sort of well, I guess close to when this journey got launched. Uh, first of all, tell us this scene from the book here. It's early in the book. Comes from you. You're in a library. 
tell us where you were and what you were doing and why you went to the library that day. Well, that's I, a great deal of this book was written at the Orange County Library in Hillsborough. And I, I was a permanent fixture there for quite some time. I had gone there to use their computer system and dial up Ancestry.com. This was on the, the return from New Jersey. And uh, my first my first attempts were to find the the lineage of my adoptive mother's family. And as I started typing information in and information was readily flowing out, there was an aha moment when I said, okay, I've never given much thought to to tracing my birth family. This is seemingly all too easy. And <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that's a good setup for this. Uh, why don't you start in with the reading there? Because you got a couple of pages here that'll kind of uh, tell us how you were surprised, and and it sort of puts sure. in perspective. Yeah, I was sitting as a computer at the library. As I sat there, I confronted the fact that after waiting so many years, I hadn't been truly looking for what I wanted to know. There was something else, and I had avoided what I might discover. I gathered my paper, shut down the computer, left the cocooned woman and the librarian with his frustrated charge behind. I returned to my car and made the short drive home. Back home in the house, I took, again, I took out the metal box and opened it. Deliberating only briefly, I retrieved my mother's folder. Again, I slowly spread it open on the table in front of me and once again carefully removed its contents, though I knew precisely what I sought. I removed the white legal-sized envelope that bore my mother's name. As I had done so many years before, I carefully opened it and extracted the two sheets of paper it held. I unfolded them, smoothed them, and although I was sure I knew what they would tell me, I read both pages carefully. It was a legal document to which the names and signatures of my parents, of Francis C. Carberry, attorney at law, and of one other individual whose name I hadn't recalled since examining the decree so many years before were all affixed. In the speckled composition book, I carefully wrote down the name that accompanied the final signature, given name, middle name, surname, before returning the papers to the envelope from which they had come, placing the envelope back in the folder and the tattered folder back in the box. As if there was a decision to be made, I looked again at the name I had written down, but I had already decided what I would do. Save for one person who briefly stopped in to check his email, the bank of library computers was quiet on this visit. More confidently this time, I opened Ancestry and stared at the blank boxes. From my open notebook, I entered the name I had transcribed. Letter by letter, I slowly typed the first name, the middle name, and the last, Genevieve Irene Narowski. I sat for a moment and wondered what the program would tell me once I pressed the search button. What would I learn? Who would I find? Would I find any record at all? A deep breath followed by a single deliberate tap of my forefinger answered my questions as a page filled with responses was returned. I scanned the screen and the logic would seem to dictate opening the first listing that appeared. I slowly scrolled down the page and stopped at an item titled Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, Immigration Cards, 1900 to 1965. With curiosity, I clicked. An official document printed in Portuguese appeared. An application for a visa, or perhaps it was the visa itself, dated March 25th, 1949, 
And while I don't read Portuguese, I could discern her name, her birth date, January 26, 1925, her parents' names, and an address in Flushing, New York. Adjacent to the text was a picture of a young woman, her hair done, makeup applied, and a serious look on her face. Though there was no reason that anyone should care, I looked around to see me if anyone else was seeing what I was. I looked again. Her profession, her profeseo, was listed as artista. Artista? Artist? What kind of artist? I was as perplexed by that as I was excited by my discovery. I found that I could email a copy of this document to myself. I quickly examined census enumerations for 1930 and 1940. Same person, same birthday, same parents. She had two sisters and an older brother. Feeling as if uninvited, I was peering through a window into the life of this previously unknown woman and her family. I made quick notes in my composition book, dated them February 22, 2017, and left for home trying to digest what I had discovered. Linda was home when I returned, and I attempted to sound nonchalant when she inquired about what I had done this afternoon. Oh, not much. I went to the library, I replied. I opened my laptop and retrieved the image of the document I had emailed from the library. I examined it one more time before asking, Would you like to see a picture of my mother? Understandably puzzled, Linda responded, We have lots of pictures of your mother. What makes this one special? Turning the computer to Linda, I said simply, This is my mother, my birth mother. So, Ed, did you know that your birth mother had... uh been an ice skater, been in the Follies, taking any of these trips? Uh, or, or was, did you start discovering this as you went on this journey? I discovered this on, on the journey. If the rare times I gave consideration to to who my mother was, I had made the assumption that she was a, you know, a high school girl who stayed out too late after the prom and, and one day found herself pregnant. And what I found was rather than that, she was rather an accomplished professional and Rather than a high school girl, she was 23 when she gave birth to me. All right. This is the question I've been burning to ask is whether the gene pool is really strong. Can you ice skate? (laughs) I always attributed my lack of ice skating ability to weak ankles. But I do have a 29-year-old son who's quite an accomplished ice skater and played ice hockey at quite a high level. Really? And he's been dating a girl who went to went to the University of Delaware on an ice skating scholarship. So, you know, I think it just skipped the genes. <laughs> Skip the, Skip the generation. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, so, Ed, uh, you talked about being in the cemetery and, and burying your father-in-law early in the book and then looking at the uh, tombstones and starting to think about family genealogy. But this event here, finding the picture, must have had, you know, an impact on you. And to do this three-year journey – uh, it takes a commitment. It takes perseverance. Um, what was it, do you think, that uh, actually caused you to roll up your sleeves and say, I'm going to really start spending some time looking into this? Well, you know, I think certainly it's I, – I let the genie out of the bottle on this one in terms of family, and I think it was something I just couldn't put back. I was living in the luxurious situation of having the time to do this. And there was just a natural curiosity uh, suddenly finding somebody who was not that high school girl, but, you know, was that 
the artista. And I, I think that really hooked me is just trying to find out what kind of artista was she and what was she doing in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> and one thing just led to another. Yeah, she, she traveled by train. She went to, to Canada, Mexico. She crisscrossed the U.S. for five years. Her, she had a, a real career. You've got some great photographs in the book of her skating. And um, So tell us a little bit about her and that life that she lived in that uh, period of time that was so exciting for her. Well, in the 1930s and the 1940s, ice skating shows were very, very big. Uh, she ultimately joined the Ice Follies, which was the first of the big ice shows. It was founded in 1935, I believe. But, you know, she, she went through a progression of, of, of appearances. She began with a small troupe called the McGowan and Mac Ice Review, and she met them in New York, was introduced to them at the time she was 17 and was all ready to go with them. And they said, no, kid, once you get out of school and you really understand what this is all about, let us know. And that was her focus from that point on. And by uh, a year later, she was on that train leaving New York City, traveling alone in the midst of World War II across the country and then into Canada where she uh, joined up with McGowan and Mac for the next, oh, probably six to eight months. She traveled with them from Canada through the Western United States. They had a fairly prolonged engagement down in Mexico City and then returned to Los Angeles where, where Mac, who was the, the owner of the show, basically said, sorry, kid, we don't have any more work. And, you know, and the troupe was just sort of disbanded at that point. She went to work in a Maxwell House coffee bagging facility to to support herself. And at the same time, she she appeared as an extra as a skater in a couple of the movies that were being produced at that time. Yeah. And, and you talk about that glamorous life and uh, how it all sort of came to a screeching halt when she found out she was uh, pregnant and uh you know, what, what they did to help her through that process and, and get her back on the, the rink afterwards. Uh, you had to sort of fill in, but you also had a lot of details here that you gathered uh, along the way through various records, but you had to fill in some of the emotional aspect of this story. How did you do that, Ed? Did you try to think about the times and what she might have been going through and um, talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So all of the the people and the places were real they're in appropriate chronological order. The one part that's lacking is, you know, what got said and, you know, what was thought. I had the privilege of, you know, of meeting some cousins who as children knew her. I was able to make contact with some of the people who I skated with her and later on met a couple of people who knew her well, well after her skating career was over. And they were all, they were just absolutely uniform in their feedback about the type of person she was. And I think that made it easy to kind of, to envision what her approach to her problem would have been and the types of things she might've said, the questions that she might've asked. Mm, yeah. And so, I know that uh, you're probably proud of your mother's tenacity in this project. And, uh, you know, it, it looks like she may have passed along some of that uh, tenacity 
to, to you <laughs> given this project that you undertook. And I, I'm just curious what you think she might think about uh, your effort to discover her past and what, what you've done to put her story out there. Well, I would hope that she would have loved it. I think, you know, in, in two respects, number one, just, I think it would have brought back wonderful memories of the places she had been and the things that she had done. And then number two, that, you know, that she had a son who, you know, appeared after so many years and, and was appreciative of the decision she made and, and had taken the time to, to look at how she approached the situation that she found herself in. Yeah. And you talked about uh, how this project brought closure for you um, in talking to, I mean, cause, and you found a lot of relatives along the way, these little breadcrumbs that got dropped, you were able to find a paternal half brother and a maternal half brother and you, you connected and you found out about them. Um, do you know what she thought over the years from what you pieced together about, uh, about you and what may have happened to you? I, I can't tell you that I have any idea. When I met my, my maternal half brother, it took quite some time to explain to him just who I was. I would say the words and I would explain it and he would just kind of shake his head. Yeah, this started by telephone and ultimately we went to go and meet him and and for the third or fourth time he said, I don't understand what kind of kin are you? And I said, you know, you and I share the same mother. And it, it took quite some time for that to register. So I yeah, he's he's now at the point where he said, Well, I guess every woman has her secret. And my guess is that, you know, she never shared that secret because certainly the cousins I've met said if if it was known to anybody, yeah, the world would have known about it. It would have been discussed. I've got questions whether or not she ever even discussed it with her with her husband once she married several years later. Uh, I, I can't help but think from from doing the research I have with interbirth mothers who put children up for adoption that there wasn't a significant degree of of, of of pain and hurt involved. And I would certainly hope over time that would have dissipated. Yeah. And we talked about, you know, of course, one of the themes of the book is adoption and family and, and finding your roots. And uh, also just this interesting story of your birth mother's life. Um, did you as uh, an adopted child ever have any feelings of abandonment? And uh, did this project, uh, help with that? Or even if you didn't have those feelings, uh, what, what's your take on how this project may have helped your, you emotionally? Well, as, as I said, it, it did bring a sense of closure. It was a story that was out there. I didn't dwell on it. And it was nice to finally come to an answer as far as the details itself. I, I never felt abandonment. I was, I was totally embraced by my adoptive parents. And, you know, there, there's no no adoptive and no birth child could have been more loved than I was. Um, and I know there are a lot of people who are adopted who have that tremendous feeling of abandonment and, and yet angry or, or distraught, whatever it might be. I'd never felt any of that. I can remember one or two instances where I, 
I probably paused and thought, who would give up a kid like me? <laughs> and it was, it was, it was more a sense of humor and, you know. <laughs> wait, 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 no, you're saying to yourself, now I understand why she gave me up, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was more it's like, you don't know what you missed having a kid like me. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, really at the end of this story, if I had a regret, you know, my, my birth mother was not alive when I finally made my total discoveries. And I, if I had one regret, it was not being able to tell her everything is good and everything turned out just fine. Yeah, well, maybe she knew that and uh, or she felt it anyway. Well, let's let's do a little writing life for a second. Uh, you, you are you did not come at this uh, as a uh, person who had written for years. You retired from a, as a customer service executive uh, and uh, you worked. Uh, did, did you ever think, Ed, you'd write a book? Uh, that I thought the possibility was out there. I had one friend who kept, you know, you, you go through a life and you accumulate experiences and you share them with people. And I had one friend who kept saying, you really need to write a book. And most of that probably would have been about my misspent youth. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I, that just never really jumped out at me. As this story started on, to unfold, I had a, a good friend who I shared it with, and he is a writer. He's written some great baseball books, and he's done some restaurant books. And uh, yeah, he kept on saying, you need to write a book. You really need to write this down and make a book. And, and that's what got me started. Mm. I, I started with a memoir essays, and it, it took off from there. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're going to be talking, uh, listeners, we're going to, after this episode's over, we're going to jump over to our Patreon channel and Ed and I are going to dive deeper into this, uh, idea of searching for one's past and how to write about it. But, uh, Ed, just a, a quick question about that here on, on the regular podcast, uh, given this three-year journey you took, do you have any thoughts from your experience for others who might want to try to do what you did? Uh, any lessons learned, any, uh, any obstacles that they might want to avoid? I guess my first my first message is start. Mm. You know, there there are lots of reasons not to do things. I think you know it's you can always begin, and if if the if there are blocks in front of you that you can't overcome, you can always stop. But you'll regret not knowing these things if if you don't ultimately start researching. There are a lot of tools out there. I think what I found in my search there are also a lot of kind and generous people. And people who are anxious to help you in along the way. So I, I, I think I also would look at yeah, finding some important writing groups or, or memoir groups, whatever it might be. But you know, there are a lot of people who are trying, and and you'll find out you can do just as well as they can. Yeah, that's a good uh, a good lesson. Um, and as you think back on this, Ed, um, are you glad you did it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I have plans to do a second book as a follow-up, which would be Genevieve's life over the next 10 or 12 years after I was placed for adoption. She led a very interesting life and traveled through Latin America and South America and Europe ice skating. And uh, I'd like to retell that tale and probably interweave through it what she might have been thinking in terms of what she left behind. Do, do you ref, ever reflect, uh, Ed, on what your life might have been like if she had just uh, 
put you in a knapsack and took her, <laughs> took, took you with her. With her. <laughs> yeah, I always tell people, you know, that they should go out and join the circus. I guess that would have been a different version. Uh, yeah. You know, I look at my, I look at my half siblings, both maternal and paternal, and I consider myself very fortunate. You know, my, my half, my maternal half brothers, you know, grew up in a very, very different environment than, than I did. Uh, my paternal brother, when I located him in the first conversation said, I'm not sure who your adopted parents were, but you probably did better being raised by them than by my father, which I think is a, you know, that that's kind of a, it, it's a sad thought. And I, I, I don't like to hear that. Other possibility is, you know, her grandparents might have raised me. Her older sister might have raised me. I'm happy. I, I'm happy with the life I lived. I think I, I benefited tremendously. Well, that's great. And this has been a, a, a very uh, interesting episode and also a book that you've written. I enjoyed uh, looking at the pictures, uh, reading through it, uh, understanding more about the story. And hats off to you for uh, for sticking with it. Uh, a lot of times people don't stick with projects. Uh, they might put them in a drawer and never come back to them. So good work there. And uh, Ed, I just want to uh, thank you for being on the show. Also remind listeners to, to, to come on over to our Patreon channel at uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Charlotte Roos Podcast and listen to you talk about how you actually got this done. But Ed, thanks so much for being on Charlotte Roos Podcast. Well, Landis, thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.